to be here too um, this evening and, um, and support the, the ministry here at Church of Five. And it's just great to look out and see so many people here have come here this evening um, in spite of the sunshine outside. It's great to see that you've made the decision to come into a dark cinema uh, and have fellowship with each other and hear the Word of God. And um, it's, um, I'm encouraged that, that, that that's the, the promise that we have, that when we do come together, Jesus Christ is present amongst us. And even if we don't always perceive the way he, He's working in us through His Spirit, we can trust Him that um, the good work, as uh, Paul writes, the good work that Christ, that Jesus Christ, that God has begun in us, He will bring to completion. And um, the way He does that is by working amongst us when we're in fellowship together, worshipping Him, um, praying with faith to Him, uh, hearing from his word and having, having um, a time together. So, great to see you here. This is, um, and I'm excited about this series. We can see the picture up here, um, the resurrection according to John. Great picture. Um, really colorful. But um, it's great to be celebrating this, the resurrection again this Sunday, even though it's not Easter Sunday. I think for, depending on which, what kind of church background you come from, Easter can often be a day that just creeps up on you and you're not even aware that it's coming and then suddenly it's there, well, Easter, and then it's kind of like forgotten again the week later and things go back to normal. But um, people who know me will know that I really um, enjoy looking back in history to see how God has built his church through the centuries. And if you look back, you'll see that, the, that Easter wasn't just a one-time thing for Christians in the early church, but they celebrated the resurrection because it was such a central part of their faith um, for many, like every Sunday, really. That's why we meet on a Sunday, because it's the day of resurrection. But more than that, and they had a particular focus on it right the way through to Pentecost. So it's great with this series here at Church at Five, The Resurrection According to John. We started last week on Easter Sunday. And we'll be having the resurrection uh, front and center tonight and the next two weeks as well as we move our way through the resurrection accounts that John gives us in his gospel of the disciples um, meeting with, encountering the risen Jesus Christ. Last week, if you, were, if you weren't there, we looked at the... Uh, the Empty Tomb, that's the name of the message, and it's the name of the, uh, the title in my Bible over the text. And it's just such a great title. It says so much in so few words. The Empty Tomb, the tomb, we confess as Christians, was really empty on that first Easter Sunday. We also looked at Jesus' account, encounter with Mary Magdalene. So you can go online anytime and listen to the, all of the past messages that are online. And I invite you to do that if you missed it. So we're going to continue tonight with um, the, the second half of chapter 20 of John. So we're in the last two chapters of John, John 20, John 21. Um, tonight we'll be in the second half of um, chapter 20. And the, the, main, um, the main encounter that happens in this section is the encounter, and we've all heard of it, where Jesus meets with Thomas. Thomas, the, the, the disciple who doubts and says, Jesus, I need to see, I need to see your wounds touch you before I'll believe. But there's a few other things that happen that are really interesting. And so we can really look at tonight as um, kind of a pre Jesus prefiguring what will happen on Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, and kind of looking down through the ages at the ministry of his church, the ministry of all those who follow him. So let me read with you now the text. Um, from John chapter 20 and from verse 19. There we read, On the evening of that first day of the week, so the Resurrection Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace 
be with you. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus or the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not mentioned in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me just pray to begin. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have an encounter now with you, our risen Lord and Savior, as we unpack this text, unfold this text, It's not my words that have that power. It's rather your living word applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit whom you have given to us and sent into the world for that specific purpose. I pray therefore that your spirit um, would fulfill uh, the goal, the purpose for which you have sent him and that we would be changed by this text, even in small ways tonight, that we would move uh, along the path that you have set for us as you continue to draw us closer to you to Make us more like you. And we look forward to the day of glory and your appearing again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's three, um, three sections, if you like, tonight that I'm going to um, just talk about. And this text is, is very simple in many ways, but it gives us such a great foundation in what we as Christians believe. And I want to say that with an assumption. We're, we're talking about what we as Christians believe, not just our generation, not just our church, but Christians going back all through the centuries. And when we say in the, um, in the creed what we believe, that we believe in the communion of the saints, what we're saying is that we have a common bond through Jesus Christ with Christians who've lived in all times and all eras, in all parts of the world, in all different church settings, that we have something common to them, namely the confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this this confession here made made so clear in so many different ways. And the first thing I want to address, the first part of what we've confessed as Christians, what the church has always confessed these last 2,000 plus years, is um, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're talking about, the resurrection according to John. And we see here John's first recording of the resurrected Jesus Christ appearing to the disciples. Up until now, in the, in the previous 18 verses of this gospel, Jesus hasn't appeared to the disciples. We see the, the empty tomb and the women go to the tomb in order to, um, to treat Jesus' body. They don't find him there. 
Jesus then appears to the women in the garden, specifically to Mary Magdalene. It's interesting in verse 17 of John 19 that he doesn't say, I'm going to go and appear to my disciples. Rather, he says, you go and tell the disciples, I am going to return to my Father in heaven. So John leaves it open at that first encounter whether Jesus will actually appear to his disciples or not. But we read here of, the, uh, of that appearing on the first day of the week. And if we think about the, the other resurrection accounts, we can track this account to when those two disciples had come back from Emmaus, a village about 11 kilometers west of Jerusalem where they'd been walking and they met the risen Christ on the road and they raced back to tell the other disciples. And it was while they were there that this encounter, that this encounter with the risen Christ must have taken place. But what I want to draw your attention to is the resurrection itself. The resurrection itself. When we ask the question, and that's a question that we need to be asking all the time, what is the Christian hope? What are we offering when we are about our lives here in Freiburg? Maybe you've come here to study for a brief period of time before you return to your own country or you're just working here for a time. And that's why you're here in the English service because you couldn't be bothered learning German. The question is still, what is the Christian hope? What are we offering to people? If people ask us, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, for a reason for the hope within us, what is that hope? And I think we need to be very clear here that the hope is, the Christian hope has always been uh, not a vague promise of heaven, but the Christian hope has always been resurrection, physical resurrection. And we see this, see this here so clearly. The disciples are so, that they're fearful, um, they're, they're amazed with joy that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that, I mean, we've said that phrase so often in this last week because of Easter. We say it, you know, um, that the Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. That it can sort of roll off our tongues. But when we really think about it, what we are confessing as Christians is that a human being, as we heard so, so clearly this morning when we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Luke's gospel, a human being, Jesus Christ, was dead, was alive, then was dead. We've all had an encounter at some point in our lives, with, or we will, with death. We're all due to die at some point. We know what death is. Death is the end of life, the end of human life. And this human being had this encounter with death, died, but had now come back to, to what? To real human life again. And the Christian hope that we preach to the world is that this is the hope we have for ourselves, that we won't remain in the grave that we won't come back as some kind of spirit, kind of floating around with a sheet over us, kind of, ooh, but we will come back as an actual physical, physical body, physical resurrection. That's the Christian hope. And Jesus shows his disciples here that this is, this is what he has wrought, this is what he has done, this is what he has accomplished. He doesn't come back to them as an appearance. He doesn't come back to them as a spirit. He doesn't come back to them as a mixed common hallucination. They all kind of had too much fish and imagined that Jesus was there with them. They were eating fish in Luke's gospel because Jesus asked them for some fish. Rather, Jesus comes back physically. He comes back with his own body. They can see, and this is a mysterious thing, they can see his hands, his feet, his side where he was pierced. His human body is resurrected to new life. But now, 
Jesus has a body which cannot die. He has put on, as a human being, immortality. And that's the hope we have. And Paul, um, that's another text for another day, but Paul outlines this hope for us in 1 Corinthians 15, where he, he clearly says what we are hoping for is the physical resurrection of our own bodies. And so the message to take away from this appearance of Jesus is that's what we're hoping for. That's what we're preaching. The Christian hope is the resurrection from the dead. We confess that as well in the creed. We believe in baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead. That's what um, the, the promise is. That's why Jesus is said in the New Testament to be the first fruits of the resurrection. When you go out into the fields and you want to see what kind of harvest will come, the first fruit is that's the first apples that appear on the tree or the first corn that appears on the, um, on the, the plant or the first grapes that appear on the vine. They're there to tell you what the rest of the harvest will look like. Jesus' resurrection is there to tell us what our resurrection will look like. And this needs to be front and center in the way we talk about the future as Christians. We need, this, we need to have a, a fundamental change, if we haven't understood this before, that we're not selling people a ticket out of this world. A, a, get, a get out of jail free card, a get to heaven free card. Away from all of, this pro, all of the problems of this world, away from physical reality, away from creation and our bodies, to up to some spiritual reality called heaven. But what we're telling people is that Jesus Christ, as Peter preaches in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost, that Jesus Christ has been taken up to heaven until the restoration of all things. God will renew. That remains a mystery to us exactly how he'll do that. He will renew his creation. He will renew this world. Whether that means a completely different world or a restoration in some way of this world that we'll be able to recognize it in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's the promise we have. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. In the resurrection, God is saying yes to his creation. Yes to physical material. Yes to our bodies. That's our hope. Not that our bodies or this physical reality is somehow intrinsically by nature evil and dirty and bad. That we need to escape from it up to some higher plane of heaven where we sit around on clouds and play harps. Harps are great in an orchestra made of wood, physically. But rather, the the vision that we have, which is unfolded in full for us in Revelation 21 and 22, is that God will restore his creation. He will renew the physical creation that he has created. And then it's not that we then ascend into heaven to be with him. It's that the heavenly city, Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to earth. And God says, from now on, I will dwell amongst my people. And he's shown us that in Jesus Christ. As uh, we heard this morning, Jesus Christ, truly man and truly God, he lived amongst us. He has taken on our nature and he has raised up our human nature in the resurrection so that we are um, being restored to to the image of true humanity, to the true image of God. So it's not our Christian hope to get away from this world. Jesus says to his disciples in John's gospel, we know those words well, he says, you are, not, you are in this world, you're not of this world, but you're in this world. I'm not taking you out of this world. I'm leaving you here in this world to begin the task of restoration, to begin building my kingdom until the day I come back and return and the kingdom is revealed in its fullness. And we see here a very, um, 
very emotive language that Jesus uses here later in verse 27 when he says he makes it clear to Thomas. Where he says to him in verse 27, put your finger here. Kind of feels weird even thinking about it. If you see a, a, a flesh wound where the nail was riven through Jesus' hand, put your finger here, touch my side. Stop doubting and believe. No apparition could say that. No mere appearance, no mere hallucination could say that. We're talking about the bodily resurrection. So that has to be our fundamental Christian hope. And my, my prayer, my desire would be when people ask us for, for the hope that we believe in, that we would communicate that. That we would communicate that and we would show that in the way that we live. And that means that, and this is such a great truth because it means that everything we do now in this world we talk a lot here at Church of Five about the calling that God has on our lives individually and as a Christian church, that everything we do will find eternal value and meaning because whatever we do here is, will be part of what is restored by God at the end of this age. It finds eternal meaning. It gives purpose to everything that we do in this life in Jesus' name. So the promise um, that we have as Christians... And uh, the, the, te- the promise that we have as Christians is that we will one day bodily rise from the dead. And I, I want you all to go home with that hope. It, it is really a glorious hope. You, you might be really struggling with things at the moment. You might even be struggling with physical sickness and seeing your current body waste away uh, towards death. But that's not the final word. The final word is that we will rise again to new life, to physical reality. And that's a glorious hope to have. And that physical reality won't simply be in a vacuum. We will be placed in a new heavens and a new earth in fellowship with all who believe with each other in the presence of God. God will live amongst us. That's the vision of Revelation 21 in all eternity. And we will have a a meaningful existence in this new heavens and in this new earth in all eternity. And that's another a message for another day. But I want us to be clear on that, that that's our Christian hope. And this is a message that the world needs to hear. They need to hear that this is our hope, that we haven't abandoned the supernatural, we haven't abandoned the resurrection in this modern period. Christ isn't for us simply a a, a good teacher with, with good ethics to help us live a good life here and make this a better place for our children. But rather the hope we have is that Jesus Christ truly did rise from the dead. He showed his disciples here his resurrection body, the body that was no longer subject to death, but had put on immortality. And in showing himself to his disciples, he he was promising them, as the rest of the New Testament unfolds for us, this is also your hope. I have conquered death. And if you remain in me, remember that other great picture from John, the vine and the branches, if you remain in me, then you will share also in the resurrection. Jesus also mentions here, he says, peace be with you. He says, peace be with you. So Jesus is emphasizing here as he comes back resurrected that through the resurrection, capping off everything that Jesus did in in the way of the cross, his passion, his suffering, his death, his descending to 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 the dead, and now his resurrection, that now everything truly is finished. He has now brought about peace between God and humankind peace with God. He says, I give you this peace. I want you to have this full, this whole, this, um, this peace that really encompasses every part 
of life. And it's interesting that it's repeated for us uh, both times that, that Jesus meets with his disciples. In verse 19, Jesus says, peace be with you. When he greets them and again, John makes sure that we understand uh, what the, the, the appearance of the resurrected Jesus means for us. Peace be with you, he says in verse 21. Let me just refer at that point to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, a verse that we'll come back to once more uh, tonight to see the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here. There Paul writes, Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a precious, precious promise from Paul, um, shown here visibly by Jesus in the way he greets his disciples. He greets them with peace. We have, we have, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, peace with God. I know many of you, like me, will struggle with uh, sin in this life. You'll struggle with doubt. We need to remind ourselves of the truth. We need to remind ourselves it doesn't matter all, all the time how we feel. What matters is the word of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, what he says. And he says to us, through this resurrection, let my peace be with you. You have peace with God. You are no longer in enmity towards God. Your sin has been paid for. Death has been conquered. I have wrought new life. There is peace with God. So that's the first point tonight. Be aware, be very aware of the Christian hope we have, the resurrection from the dead, peace with God. And we want to be telling people that message. You want to be telling people that message. I think our culture, sorry to labor the point once more, but let me give you this last illustration. Our culture has no idea about the Christian hope of resurrection. Very little. Most of the time when the culture thinks about the afterlife from a Christian sense, we think about the pearly gates and St. Peter. He's kind of standing before the gates and he's asking questions of people who come in and it's kind of like, and it's always presented as if it's on a cloud and you have to answer a question then you might get in the pearly gates. But that is nowhere in the New Testament. How can that be in a, in a, in a culture which is still to some degree um, shaped by centuries of Christian faith before us that people out there have no idea what the Christian hope is? And most of the time these caricatures and these jokes are presented in the sense that you have to have done good things in order to get by Peter at the pearly gates. This is just so foreign. So it's not a question of people have heard this all before and they're just going to be bored when I talk to them about Jesus. People have no idea about the Christian hope of resurrection. And the great thing is that there's so many good resources out there now for helping people see from a historical point of view that, the, that the, it is most plausible, most rational and most plausible to believe that the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday. Not because Jesus never died and not because the disciples stole away the body, but because Jesus really did rise from the dead. So hold fast to that hope. No matter your life at the moment, you're looking forward to the resurrection from the dead. And then Jesus, um, the next few verses that we want to look at, 21 through 23, and I'll, I'll be, be brief here because we do want to get to Thomas. Jesus is kind of prefiguring Pentecost here. We're looking forward to Pentecost now as a church. We've got... 50 days from Easter to Pentecost. 
And this is kind of a, um, a time where in the life of the church, we want to be really full of joy, praising God for the resurrection, glorifying in the fact that Jesus Christ has conquered sin, has conquered death, has conquered the devil, but realizing we need power from on high in order to pursue the mission that God has given us as Christians. So we also want to be holding out, looking forward to celebrating Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out upon us. And Jesus prefigures this now, because at Pentecost itself, as you know, if you know your holidays in Germany, that um, Vatertag, Ascension Day, Himmelfahrt, always comes uh, 10 days before Easter, so Jesus must be away when, uh, sorry, before Pentecost, when Pentecost comes. And so he prefigures it to his disciples. He tells them in these verses what's going to happen really at Pentecost. Let me read to them, you again. He says here, as the Father has sent me, verse 21, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So there's three things to, to, to look at here. The sending, the spirit, and I'll say uh, the church. This is John's way of giving us the, the commission that Matthew gives us so powerfully on the mountain before Jesus ascends into heaven. The so-called great commission, all power and authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. Jesus says here, um, in, in John's gospel, John's always uh, emphasizing the relationship the relationships between the different persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says here, as the Father has sent me, Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father within the Trinity, I am sending you as my disciples. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive, the third person of the Holy Trinity, receive the Holy Spirit. So clearly here, Jesus' disciples are to be sent out with this resurrection hope. It's not to remain um, a private faith, a private belief, a private revelation in, the, in that upper room through those, that doesn't pass through those locked doors, that only this select group know about this, this mystery of the resurrection, but rather this message is to go out into the world. And Jesus says here, he received the Holy Spirit. So he's prefiguring what will happen visibly on Pentecost that the disciples should wait in, in Jerusalem after his ascension into heaven, until they receive the Holy Spirit from on high. So he's saying, in order to, to do the sending, I'm sending you out, in order to do that, you need to receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that we'll talk uh, more about that when Pentecost comes around. And Jesus makes an, an interesting point, an interesting statement here in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That's, I think, a verse that we could often skip over, but let me just um, say a few words to that. It's amazing the trust that Jesus places in his disciples and ultimately in his church. These are the, the men that Jesus has selected to found the church, his apostles, his, his sent ones, his messengers, his ambassadors, and he basically, he hands his authority to them. I think sometimes we have a tendency in our time to um, to underestimate the authority that Jesus Christ has given to his church. I know I say that as kind of a church leader. I could be like, you guys need to show some more respect. That's not what I mean. And unfortunately, church history is, 
littered with examples of this authority being abused, not least in our own time in the last uh, decades and centuries. Nevertheless, it's true here. Jesus gives the promise in Matthew, I will build my church, and he gives his church here authority. And here, the authority that is given to them is the authority to forgive sins or not to forgive sins. That is ultimately to to preside over the, the promise that Jesus has given. If you, are, if, you are, if you confess your sins, then he is faithful to forgive. And the church has given the authority to see, are these people uh, true? Uh, are they um, sincere when they come here to seek Jesus Christ, to seek forgiveness for their sins, to seek God? So this is the, the, the authority that is given to the church to preserve the gospel, to preserve the, uh, the announcement, the, the, uh, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of forgiveness from sins and the gospel of um, a promise of new resurrection life. So Jesus here, just with his disciples in this place, he prefigures what's going to happen visibly in Jerusalem in 40 days' time. And if you've got questions about those, that kind of thing, then you might want to talk to me afterwards. But we'll go on now to, um, to read his appearance to Thomas. I think this is a, real, a really important um, encounter with the risen Christ, the, the encounter that Thomas has with him. We see, again, there's so much truth here that we confess as Christians that comes out here in this little encounter. Let me read it to you uh, again. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve He was not with the disciples when Jesus came the first week on Resurrection Sunday in that evening. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he then said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In many cases, that's a society that we're dealing with right here in Freiburg. That's the kind of claim that's put up against us. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This we see here the the highest confession of faith in uh, in Jesus Christ given to us in the Gospels, and this is something that we want to dwell on uh, a moment that. It's, it's not told us whether Thomas ultimately did put his hands in Jesus' wounds or touch Jesus' side. But when Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, again, no apparition, no appearance, but the physical resurrected Lord and God, uh, um, Lord Jesus Christ, that was how Jesus was able to offer Thomas that he might place his hands in his wounds because he was truly, really, physically there. We see that Thomas says to him in verse 28, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. 
It's important to, to recognize, to dwell a moment um, on this confession of Thomas. Because this is the confession of faith of the Christian church. That is what we all confess as Christians, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. Not only is he both Lord and God, he is my Lord and, God, and my God, your Lord and your God. So this is an expression here um, of, of worship, of reverence, of adoration. We want to dwell here on, on two points. The, the content of what Thomas says here and the, the attitude. The attitude. Let me start by with the attitude. The, um, the, the, the response. No, actually, let me do it the other way around. Let me start here with the, with the content. Thomas says here, my Lord and my God. He identifies Jesus Christ as Lord in the Greek, kurios. And in doing so, he uses the, um, the name, the designation for God in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, in the Old Testament scriptures, the, the, word, the Hebrew, Hebrew word Adonai, Lord, was used to describe the sovereign Lord, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the one true eternal God. And he was called Adonai. Lord. And when the scriptures were translated into, the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek um, before the time of Christ, 300 years before Jesus Christ lived, the, the word the translators used for God, for Lord, uh, in Greek, to translate that Adonai was kurios, or Lord. And that's what Thomas says here in his confession. He comes before Jesus and he says, my Lord, and then he adds to it, my God, my Lord and my God. So for, for Thomas at this point, and John is, 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 is giving us this testimony here, that we might join with Thomas in confessing that Jesus is our Lord and our God. John and Thomas is saying, this is not just the Messiah, not just an anointed teacher, not just a rabbi, not just a, an ethics a master of ethics or philosophy or the way to live life, but rather this is truly God. Jesus Christ is truly God. Jesus Christ is truly God. It's interesting here that Jesus does not reject Thomas' worship. This is truly an act of worship, of honoring God for being God, honoring God for who he is. Jesus doesn't say, stop, stop. We know that from other parts of the Bible, not least, for example, in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, they heal someone in the city of Iconium, I believe, and the, the people of the city come out to them and start to uh, worship them as, as Greek deities, as Zeus and Hermes. Hermes, sorry, in English. And uh, Paul and Barnabas, you, re you recognize, say, stop, stop. We're only men, creatures just like you. We're not gods. We're bringing you the message of, from the true God, from the one true God, but we're not gods. Stop. Stop. Or angels. When, uh, when angels, when, when um, people begin to worship angels in the New Testament, they're also told to stop. The angels themselves say, we are creatures just like you. But here, Jesus does not reject Thomas' worship. Jesus doesn't say, stop, Thomas. I'm just an anointed prophet of God. Please, I'm not God. Jesus 
accepts Thomas' worship. He accepts Thomas' designation of him as Lord and God. And in fact, he blesses Thomas. He blesses Thomas for saying this. Reminds me of Jesus' blessing of Peter. When Peter confesses in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the question, who do you guys, who do you, my disciples say that I am? Not what the other people say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it's at that point that Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So Jesus blesses Thomas for making this confession. And we have to, I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to really think about that, to, spend, to, to just pause from all of our rushing thoughts for a moment or, or all of the things that we kind of take for granted as Christians to, to, to ask, do we see Jesus Christ as truly man and truly God? He was truly a man standing there in the resurrection body, eating, as Luke reports, eating fish with the disciples, standing in front of them, able to be touched by Thomas, truly a man, and yet he says to Thomas, blessed are you for saying this, Thomas. I am truly Lord and truly God. I am one with Yahweh, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But this is the confession of the Christian church. This is where, it come, this is where the, you might say the rubber hits the road. This is what you have to confess in order to be a Christian, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God, that he is a true, truly man and truly God. The true, the true Christian confession is therefore that Jesus is not merely a teacher, but that he is truly God. This is a, a um, such a high confession of faith, worship, and reverence here. And so the question would be: um, Do do we? Do we share this confession of Thomas at this point? That is a, a question of great, uh, great weight um, that we each have to weigh up for ourselves in our own heart. Do we truly confess and believe? Unlike Thomas who believed when he saw, but we who believed having not seen, we'll get to that in just a moment. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is truly Lord and truly God? Not only Lord and God in an abstract sense, but my Lord and my God, do you say that? Can you say that confession? My Lord and my God. Do we truly understand Jesus Christ to be the God-man, truly man and truly God? We see here what um, Jesus says to Thomas. He blesses him. He says in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And he's speaking out here a blessing. Jesus is looking down through the corridors of time at all who will follow and believe in the testimony of his eyewitness disciples. And he's saying, Blessed are those who have not seen, who haven't been here in the room with me, who haven't experienced my three years of ministry, who weren't there on Calvary's Hill on Good Friday, but who have yet believed these things to be true. That's a direct blessing for us. If we believe this eyewitness testimony that John the Apostle, St. John, is giving us here in his gospel. And blessed is, really, really means that we are enjoying the favor of God. God is pleased when we believe this testimony. Having not seen, yet we believe, yet we trust 
the word of God that we've been given us. This is important. This is not a blind faith that we have. As we, uh, we see in the last part of our text tonight, Jesus, John writes here, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. This is the purpose of John's gospel. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is not blind faith. This is faith in the testimony of eyewitnesses who were there, who have received the blessing of God. And this means that this establishes for us as Christians the the testimony of the word of God as the highest testimony, the strongest testimony, that the, the, the rule of faith is for us, the scriptures. We believe in this testimony because it is written as being recorded for us. Let me give you a quote at this point from a guy called William of Ockham. You may have heard of Ockham's Razor. This is the kind of guy who that was named after. He says this, he says, In matters of faith and science, I'm more impressed by one evident reason or by one authoritative passage of Holy Scripture correctly understood than by the chorus of humankind, all the voices of the world. I'm not ashamed to be convinced of truth. In fact, To have truth victorious over me, I consider the most useful thing for me. But I never want to be defeated by the multitude of voices. It may indeed be read in the word of God that the multitude, the crowd as a rule, often errs. And that very often one solitary man may put all the rest to flight. He says there at the end, it's it's often the case that all of the people together are incorrect and it's one solitary person who in fact holds the truth. But you see the the point that he's making here. I want the truth of God's testimony in his word to rule over my life, to be victorious over me. That's the most useful, most beneficial, the most blessed thing for me. And my aim, my goal, my desire would be that we would all come to, to this confession of faith that Thomas gives here, even though he doubted until he saw that we who, who cannot see in that sense, yet we have the eyewitness account, that that blessing might fall on us, where Jesus says here, blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. I pray that blessing would come upon us when we, each of us, make this confession of Thomas our own confession, when we come before Jesus Christ and recognize him as truly man, truly God, our Lord and God. But the purpose of this belief, as I let me finish here with these two verses, um, 30 and 31, is not merely to agree to that this is true or that this really happened or that this eyewitness testimony is accurate. The purpose, as John points out here in verse 31, the purpose that he's written this down for us is that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the, the chosen one, the anointed one of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. That's what happened to Thomas. As tradition records, Thomas didn't stay doubting. He made this confession, my Lord and my God, and he gave his life to the service of the gospel. And according to the history of the church, he ended up as in India, many, many miles away from the Holy Land, having carried the gospel to India. Thomas had life 
in Jesus' name. I just want to quickly look at what this life looks like, just based on the verses that we've looked at here. The life that we have in Jesus' name is grounded in the belief that we have, a confession that we have in the truth, um, not, a, not merely a confession of words, but a confession of our hearts, that we truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that death is conquered, that we truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is here, Lord and God. It's that we're part of the church that Jesus prefigures here when he thinks forward to Pentecost, to the, to the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the, the institution of the Christian church as God's way of reaching the nations. It means to be, to be blessed, to, be, to live in the favor of God, not necessarily in the material favor of God, but knowing that God, um, that we enjoy his favor, that God is pleased with us because we believe the testimony about his son. But this is not, um, this, we could think that, that, you have, that you have life in his name means that kind of everything's okay or everything's going to be easy. And that's not the case. And it's important to, to, to note that at this point. All the disciples here in this upper room would go on to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. The truth of the New Testament scriptures is that the Christian life is not an easy life. And this is the tension we have. The promise of the New Testament is for life, or as Jesus says, life to the fullness of life. Jesus says, peace be with you. Or, or, or be full of joy at the resurrection, but at the same time we're confronted with suffering. But this is the life that Jesus led. Jesus, that's, I think that's where the tension can be, um, can be solved for us. Jesus invites us into a full life as his disciples. And to be his disciple, as we saw in Holy Week, means to follow after him, to follow in his footsteps, to live as he lived. And if we look at the way Jesus lived, Jesus lived the full life. He lived the life of true humanity in communion with God and with men. And yet he lived a life of suffering. And there's the, the message of the New Testament, it's a mysterious message in some ways, but the message is that it's through suffering that we will ultimately be brought to perfection and completeness in God. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know, I, when I used to go to school, we, had, we used to have swimming carnivals. We used to go swimming or we had running carnivals. Or running, I don't know what you call them in America. Do you call them carnivals? No, you've got no idea what I'm talking about. When everyone has to go, you know, the school has, everyone goes to the pool and you have to like race. Yeah. Don't have that over there maybe, I don't know. And it'd be kind of like, oh, you didn't want to do it, you know. You had to, you had to go in front of everyone else and you're like, mm, I'm not the best swimmer, I'm going to fail here, I'm not the best runner, or it's going to be painful, I've got to run, um, you know, three miles across country. And that's kind of how we can often feel. And, and Jesus Christ, and, and the point is that the people who loved us in our lives, in my life at that time, they never said to me, don't swim, don't run. They knew that it was going to be hard. They knew that it was going to be uncomfortable, but they knew as well that the way to, to mature in life was to go through the swimming, was to go through the running, was to put myself in that situation which was going to be hard, I mean, hard, which was going to be uncomfortable, to go through it and in, and in that process I would be maturing and, and I would come through the other side and I would realize that that was the way, that was always going to be the true way to go. I may be overloading that um, illustration a little, but that's the way the Christian life is. Jesus stands there and he loves us with a perfect love. As we see in John 13, he loves us with a perfect love 
Yet he doesn't take us away from suffering. He doesn't take us away. He says to his disciples, peace be with you, knowing that his disciples will go on to suffer. And so the, 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 the life that Jesus led, he's our model. So he stands here and, and I think that's the way, that's the invitation that I can only extend to you and pray that you would have hearts of faith and of joy to receive it. To say that, yes, it is difficult and it is hard, but this is the way to life. And if you start down this way, Jesus will be with you and it will be painful and it will be hard. But ultimately, it will be the fullest life. It will be the fullest life. And there is joy and there is peace on the road and fullness of joy and fullness of peace at the end. And that's what John is writing here, that we would have this life in his name. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can I ask the band to come back up? And I'll just finish here. We just draw this back to um, church at five. I just... We're all on this, this road together here. And that's the great thing, that Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us his spirit and he gives us fellowship. And so my invitation to you here at the end is that we really um, not take advantage in that sense, but be aware of, of what God has given us in this fellowship, in being here together. That we, on the one hand, have a deep seriousness about the profound calling which we have to take out this resurrection hope to a world that so desperately needs us knowing that we are in this world but not of this world, that we will have trouble in this world, but Jesus has overcome the world, being aware that we will have to suffer for it, but being here safe and enjoying the peace and the fellowship and the joy that God has given us as his family here uh, in this church. So that's such a great thing. and I really hope that you can enjoy that blessing as we sing this last song and as we then have fellowship after the service.